if I had to guess, then I'd guess that you probably never feel discouraged in your evangelism. I'd guess that you probably never feel alone in the task of telling others about the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe, maybe you never feel uncertain that God can use you in the salvation of sinners. You, you probably never feel afraid of, of worldly powers, right? Who might oppose you or, or oppress you for sharing Christ, right? No, I'm, I'm pretty sure that you've probably all felt those things at one time or another. Perhaps you're even feeling maybe one or more of them right now. Brothers and sisters, I've got good news for you. Uh, you're in good company. That's exactly how the New Testament's most prolific church planter felt when he was in Corinth. It, that's how the Apostle Paul felt when he lived and ministered in Corinth. And it's good news that you're in good company with the Apostle Paul, but there's even better news than that. The Lord Jesus is pleased to use such discouraged, lonely, uncertain, afraid, and hesitant people like you and me. And that's because the Lord Jesus, He is committed to His mission. The Lord Jesus is so committed to His mission that He has purpose to come to overcome all of our discouragement, all of our hesitancy, all of our fear, all of our loneliness. The Lord Jesus, in the passage that we'll see together this morning, He, he comes alongside Paul and us, and He encourages us. He encourages His missionaries so that we have the strength needed to carry His mission and message forward to the ends of the earth. This is what we have the privilege of thinking about together this morning from God's Word. If you haven't done so, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles or open your Bibles to Acts chapter 18. We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 23. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you should be able to find the passage on page 927. Now, you should know that the book of Acts, it chronicles the ongoing ministry of the risen and reigning Lord Jesus Christ through His disciples by the power of His Holy Spirit. The goal of this book is to see the message of salvation about King Jesus reach the ends of the earth. Lately, we've been studying Paul's second missionary journey where we're seeing that message go to the ends of the earth. We've seen that Jesus, He saves all kinds of people. And this morning, Lord willing, we'll come to the end of Paul's second missionary journey. Here, Paul, he, he travels back to Corinth. He travels to Corinth, I should say. Not back to Corinth, but to Corinth. He ministers there. Uh, and then... He eventually makes his way back to the church that sent him out, the church in Antioch. What does this particular portion of God's Word teach us? It teaches us that the Lord Jesus sovereignly leads and guides his mission in every way. Let me say that again because that's the point of our passage. It's going to be the point of this sermon. The Lord Jesus sovereignly leads and guides his mission in every way. And here's how we see that unfold in our passage. In verses 1 to 4... The Lord Jesus sends the Apostle Paul partners in ministry. In verses 5 to 11, the Lord Jesus, He reveals His plan for the Gospel's advance there in Corinth. Then in verses 12 to 17, the Lord Jesus protects Paul, His ambassador. And in verses 18 to 23, the Lord Jesus propels Paul on in mission. So if, if you're taking notes this morning, those four points are going to form the outline of the rest of the sermon. And I believe there's also an outline provided for you in your bulletin that will hopefully help you follow along. And brothers and sisters, let me just give you kind of the, the main application here on the front end of the sermon. What's the main application of this text? Brothers and sisters, here's the comfort and courage that this truth gives us. If the Lord Jesus Christ really leads and guides His mission, 
then we as his missionaries, we can joyfully partner with fellow believers in the work of the gospel. We can go on proclaiming the good news of Jesus, trusting that the salvation of sinners is really in Jesus' very capable hands. But we don't have to be afraid of earthly threats to our lives or our liberties, for Jesus guards our eternal souls. And we can keep going in the mission, knowing that Jesus will have the prize for which he died, the inheritance of nations. Well, let's take a closer look at God's word together now. Follow along as I read Acts chapter 18, verses 1 to 4. And this is where we see Jesus send partners to join Paul in the work. Look at Acts chapter 18, verses 1 to 4. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Well, brothers and sisters, you see the opening words of our text there after this. They remind us that Paul's been busy preaching the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ in Athens. You recall that he's just given an amazing sermon in the Areopagus, the kind of the seat of knowledge of the ancient world. And now he travels to Corinth. And given its situation, Corinth was a city known for its wealth and its wickedness. It was a port city, a major port city, not just one port, but two actually. Uh, and so a lot of commerce happened in and through Corinth. But not only was it known for its wealth, it was also known for its wickedness. It had a very large temple dedicated to Aphrodite, who had over a thousand female slaves serving as prostitutes. It was a wicked city. Its wealth was matched by its wickedness. This is the daunting and depraved city that the Apostle Paul has come to minister to. And we must remember that Paul is all alone. When Paul was sent on to Athens, he was separated from his missionary companions. And so he's all alone there in Athens, and now he's all alone in Corinth. And in God's kindness, Paul wasn't to minister in Corinth alone. He was uh, met there, he met co-workers there, Christian co-workers in Aquila and Priscilla. Now Luke, he gives us some brief details about Aquila and Priscilla, doesn't he? He wants us to know who they are and, and kind of their, their background, but he most importantly wants us to know why they've actually come to Corinth. So, so we learn there in verse 3 that they're, they're tent makers, they're originally from Pontus, they'd recently come from Italy, and note why. Claudius has issued a decree expelling the Jews from Rome. And this is a really fascinating historical fact from Luke. Uh, the, the Roman historian Suetonius, he's actually documented this decree from Claudius that came in 49 AD, where he expelled the Jews from Rome because of this disturbance that had arisen over someone named Christus. Maybe that's Jesus Christ. It seems most likely, and most scholars agree, that's what's going on. Well, the conflicts were so heated there in Rome that Claudius decided to deal with the disturbance uh, by expelling all of the Jews from Rome. And so that's what propelled Aquila and Priscilla onto Corinth. And Luke sees Jesus, I think, using Claudius' decree as furthering his mission and supporting his missionary. Right? Ordinarily, uh, Paul would be a competitor with Aquila and Priscilla, given that they worked in the same trade. But they're not competitors, are they? They're companions in Christ. They quickly become co-workers in the same trade, but also co-laborers in the gospel. And don't pass over the, the humility and the flexibility of Paul here. Paul was willing to do whatever the mission required wherever he was. So in Corinth, he was required to work with his hands to support himself. 
Sometimes Paul works with his hands. Sometimes he's fully dedicated to preaching. In Corinth, he's working Monday to Friday, and on Saturday, he's there preaching and teaching there in the synagogue. Brothers and sisters, recognize this, that your, your life probably follows Paul's pattern, right? You're, you're working Monday to Friday, uh, and yet you can be faithful wherever you are. Whether you're working uh, in, in the world or working out of your home, uh, you can be faithful to, to find believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, to partner with them in furthering the gospel of Jesus Christ. Aquila and Priscilla, we see here, they, they open their home, thus providing Paul a place to stay and work and a base from which to, to preach out of, really. In fact, as you continue reading the New Testament, you'll see that wherever Aquila and Priscilla are mentioned, they're described as hospitable and helpful uh, to the gospel's advance, especially. And, and what a great way for couples to be engaged in furthering the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. So for, for those of you who are looking to be married, look for someone who's going to be committed to being hospitable and helpful to the gospel's advance. For those of you who are married, talk now about how you can be more hospitable and helpful to the gospel's advance. And, and for you single uh, brothers and sisters, maybe find a, a married couple in the congregation whom you can lovingly implore to open their home and say, hey, would you partner with me in the gospel? I've got some co-workers I want to invite over. Maybe we'll do a game night at your home and we can talk and, and let's talk about Jesus with them. That'd be a great way to partner in the good news of Jesus Christ. And what, what wonderful co-workers in the gospel Aquila and Priscilla are. They were hospitable and they were helpful. We see that especially there in verse 3 because Paul has a place to stay, a way to earn a living. He can be enabled to reason in the synagogue and try to persuade Jews and Greeks that Jesus Christ is the Savior that the Old Testament Scriptures promised. Now Luke, he's actually already used this language of reasoning and persuading. Do you see it there in the text? He's described Paul this way in, in Thessalonica. So as he did in Thessalonica, so he does in Corinth. Paul reasons with those in the synagogue. You might also translate that word, he argued with those in the synagogue. Now that, that word, um, it doesn't mean that Paul's arguing angrily, right? Uh, no, what Paul is doing is he's establishing an argument based upon evidence. He's methodically showing that those gathered in the synagogue what the scriptures say about God's Messiah. He's methodically showing them that these scriptures, they actually point to Jesus. They show us Jesus' life lived out. And now salvation is available in Jesus Christ. Paul's not only arguing, he's reasoning, but he's also persuading, attempting to persuade the Jews and the Greeks. He's trying to convince them that the king had come. He's, he's really actually pleading with them earnestly that Jesus, the Messiah, had come. And you should give your life to him. We too should persuade we should reason from the scriptures showing that Jesus is the Christ. We, we should plead. We should be earnest with those around us about the availability of salvation in Jesus Christ. This is what Paul did. He preached and persuaded. But all of this, I think in God's design, was made possible by the partners that the Lord Jesus sent to Paul. We've seen how the Lord Jesus, he sends partners to join Paul in the work. Now let's turn to examine Acts chapter 18, verses 5 to 11 where we see the Lord Jesus reveal his plan to Paul. Follow along as I read Acts chapter 18, verses 5 to 11, and, and see if you can spot for yourself where it is that the Lord Jesus reveals his plan for Paul's ministry there in Corinth. Verse 5. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own 
heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the, syn- the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking. And do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. Well, you see there in verse 5 that old partners uh, with Paul in gospel work turn up. They, They meet him, and they find Paul, or Paul begins to be occupied there in the work of the gospel. Silas and Timothy are these old partners. Uh, They've been previous missionary companions, but they were separated from Paul at Berea. And now we see them reunited. We learn actually from 2 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 8 and Philippians chapter 4 verse 15 that these two brothers actually brought a financial gift to Paul. And it was Silas and Timothy's arrival really with this probably financial gift that allowed Paul to set aside his tent making. It seems to be the implication of the text. He's allowed to set aside his tent making to be more fully engaged and devoted and pressed into the work of preaching and teaching. You see, Paul, he was compelled in his spirit by the Holy Spirit to make Christ known to those in Corinth. Paul had been bivocational, using his secular work to support his sacred work, but now, through the generosity of the church in Philippi and other brothers in Macedonia, he was able to stop tent making and to be fully occupied in telling others about Jesus Christ. And just by way of application, uh, beloved, this is why we would support overseas gospel workers. Right? We want to free them up from secular work so that they can more fully and freely give themselves to the task, the sacred task, of testifying to Jesus Christ. Note carefully what Paul teaches there at the end of verse 5. You see it? He was testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. This is one of the dominant themes in the book of Acts. It's turned up um, no, no less than six times already in the book of Acts that Jesus was the Christ. When Paul has been engaged in this work, he's sought to show how the Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah, the Christ, the the King who was going to come and deliver God's people from their sins, how those prophecies about the Christ previewed and predicted the life of Jesus. Well, this careful work in the Word is what led to the opposition to the Word concerning God's Son. Do you see that in verse 6? If you've, if you've studied or read through the book of Acts before, you'll know that Paul has faced opposition like this before. But this time, uh, Paul, he offers this kind of prophetic announcement, doesn't he? It's akin to what we read about earlier in the service. We read from Ezekiel 33, verses 1 to 9, where that, that passage described a watchman who was to warn the city, who was to blow the trumpet and to warn everybody, and those who heard were responsible to respond to that trumpet. If they didn't, then... Their judgment, their blood would be upon their own heads. And, and what, that's what Paul is, is doing here. He's saying that he has discharged his duty. He's blown the trumpet of the gospel there in the synagogue. And they have refused to respond. And, and now their blood is on their own head if they don't respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. He has told them that Christ has come. And if they will not turn from their sins and trust in Jesus, then they are culpable and responsible for their own judgment. Paul's declaration there, that he will go to the Gentiles, it's, it's not really absolute. 
um, as though he'll never speak to another Jew ever again. I mean, he's going to speak to some Jews right next door uh, to the synagogue in a, in a house. Um, he, he actually will find him later on in our passage in Ephesus ministering in a synagogue. Paul's point is that he's not coming back to that synagogue. He, he's been faithful to deliver the message that he's, and he's faced enough opposition to know that, that now's the time to leave. He's now going to offer Christ in a predominantly Gentile environment. In fact, in the home of a Gentile. Paul's leaving those in the synagogue responsible to respond to God's offer of salvation in Jesus. Now, while some oppose the word, as we see there, we also see that some were open to the word. Verses 7 and 8, we find that. Titius Justus, he was a, a Greek worshiper of Yahweh. And he opened his home, his house, to Paul's preaching and teaching. And do you see, did you notice this in the text as we read it, where that house was located? It was located right next door to the synagogue. And I think Luke gives us that detail for a reason. This means that everyone at the synagogue knew who the Christians were. It would have cost the first converts to Christianity something to gather there, especially the Jewish ones. Uh, they couldn't be secret Christians in Corinth. And let's be sure that we are not to be secret Christians either. Uh, another man who was open to the word was this man named Crispus. He was apparently the ruler, the, the local leader of that synagogue. It likely cost him many friendships when he believed that Jesus was the Christ. It certainly cost him his leadership position there in the synagogue. Sometimes, brothers and sisters, sometimes, friends, there is a cost to following Jesus. But you need to know this. It is worth it. It is eternally worth it. Instead of our own blood being upon our heads and having to face the infinite and eternal wrath of God forever in hell because we've rejected His Son and rebelled against Him, it is worth it to trust in Jesus and to believe that He has borne the punishment that's due to us for our sins. Friends, eternity outweighs the temporary. The pleasure of God outweighs the punishments of man. Trusting in Jesus and following Jesus is worth everything that we have and are. And Jesus even calls those who believe in Him to publicly identify with Him in baptism. That's what Christmas and all of those in his household did. They were baptized. They were immersed in water. Baptism, as you see here, it follows belief. This is the way that baptism is always presented in the book of Acts and the New Testament. Baptism always follows belief. And that's because baptism is a sign that signifies what Jesus has done for us. In the words of our church's statement of faith, baptism is the immersion in water of a believer into the name of the Father and Son and Holy Ghost to show forth in a solemn and beautiful emblem our faith in the crucified, buried, and risen Savior. So friends, you see, our, our immersion in water is our public identification with Christ. It's how we show that we believe Jesus died for us and was raised for us. It's how we show that we are going to die to sin and live to righteousness by the grace and help of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's how Jesus has ordained that we show the world that we believe that He is our Savior. And friend, if you're here this morning, you're not a believer, follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that you are open to this word about Jesus. I pray that you are not opposed to this word about Jesus. I pray that you be obedient to this word about Jesus and follow His commands, not only to repent and believe, but also to be baptized. Friend, as long as you remain opposed to this word about Jesus, you are in great danger. 
God offers you salvation in Jesus Christ. And if you refuse to receive him, then you will face God's judgment and wrath. And you will have no one to blame but yourself. Your blood, friend, will be upon your own head. The trumpet of the gospel has already been blown this morning. And you should respond to Jesus Christ. Your blood on your head, it doesn't have to be that way. Friend, God made you. He made you in His image. He made you to know Him, to love Him, to serve Him, to worship Him. But you, like all of us here, we've all turned away from God. We've rebelled against God. We've sinned against God. We've broken His law. We failed to live up to His law. And that sin is an offense against God. And since we've offended and sinned against an infinite and eternal God, we deserve to face infinite and eternal punishment forever in hell. That's what it means for the blood to be upon our own head if we die in our sins. Friends, it doesn't have to be that way because God sent His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to live the life that we've not lived, the life of perfect obedience to God the Father. Jesus, being fully man and fully God, He lived, He loved in perfect glory to His Father. And He died on the cross. He gave up His life for all of those who would ever turn from their sins and believe in Him. And on that cross, our judgment for our sin and for all of those who had ever turned from their sin and placed their faith in Jesus was poured out upon Him. He bore the eternal wrath of God on the cross. But not only did He die, three days after His death, God raised Jesus from the dead, vindicating Him and proving to us all that His life and death on behalf of repenting sinners was acceptable in God's sight. And all those who turned from their sin and trusted Him will escape that judgment. Friend, that's how you escape that judgment. That's how you escape the wrath to come. And blood being upon your own head. You hear the call of Jesus Christ saying, Come to me and believe upon me and you will be saved. Oh friend, turn from your sin and place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will escape God's wrath to come. Escape that, that warning. Turn to him today. Do not oppose this word about Jesus. Open your heart to Jesus and come to him. And if you want to know more about what it means to open your heart to Christ, come and find me at the door after the service. I know we're rushing downstairs afterward to eat, but I would love to talk to you about that. There's, that's more important for food, for your body. That's food for your soul, and we will certainly get you food for your body as well. But come to Jesus and trust in Him today. Well, brothers and sisters, friends, notice verses 9 to 11. The Lord Jesus, He spoke to Paul in a vision. In that sense, this is an oracle. And we need to be clear, divine oracles are not ordinary. This is the way that God speaks to prophets and apostles, those who are especially commissioned to be organs and bearers of divine truth. This is a unique experience for the Apostle Paul. And we should not expect this to be our experience. Still, every aspect of this vision is meant to address a need in Paul. Every aspect of this vision is meant to address a need in Paul. Notice Jesus Precept. This is Jesus' command to Paul. Do not be afraid. Now, think about this. Paul, he's just endured serious conflict in the synagogue. So much so that he's, he's willing to walk out of it, right? And yet, more conflict is on the horizon. If you've looked ahead in the passage, Paul must have been afraid here. And here's Jesus telling him to stop it. Don't you, don't you love that? We, we might think that Jesus is not very sensitive to Paul's fears. But when the sovereign Lord of the universe, the one who commands the winds and the waves, the one who came to earth to bring us to heaven, when he tells you not to be afraid, 
you have to remember who is speaking. You have to remember that He is issuing this as a word of care for you. And you have to remember that He can act for you. That's Jesus' precept, His command to Paul. But notice His prod. He says, Paul, I want you to keep on preaching. These words from Jesus must have been addressing a temptation in Paul. Jesus must have known that Paul was tempted and discouraged. He was tempted to stop preaching. And so Jesus prods him, Paul, you need to keep preaching. And then Jesus tells Paul something that should give him peace. He reminds Paul that he is with him. Brothers and sisters, remember remember that when the Master is near, our fears melt. When we remember that we are in His company, that we are His children, and that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord, then we can be at peace. Peace is found in Jesus' presence. It's also found in part for Paul here in Jesus' promise. Do you see what Jesus promises Paul there in verse 10? He promises to protect him. Here Jesus promises a physical protection for Paul there in Corinth. This is his promise. It's aimed at Paul's particular circumstance there in Corinth. And we know this, that this is specifically tied to Corinth because later in his ministry, as we keep studying the book of Acts, we'll see Paul suffer many things. Still, this is a glorious and encouraging promise for Paul to press ahead with the ministry there in Corinth. And then, in the climax of this vision, do you see what Jesus reveals? He reveals his plan there. That's what, verses 5 and 11, that's what they've been marching toward this whole time. The Lord Jesus, he plans to save many. He tells Paul, you do not, do not need to be afraid. You must go on speaking. Remember that I am with you. I'm protecting you because I plan to use you to bring many to salvation in this city. One commentator, he, he pointed out wisely, I think, that while many had not yet believed in Jesus, they belonged to him according to Jesus' eternal and saving purpose. We've seen this sort of disclosure before, actually, in the book of Acts. That God has a people that He plans to save through the preaching of His gospel. And so in Acts chapter 13, verse 48, we read, As many were appointed to eternal life, believe. The, the scriptures, they, they reveal that God has elected and predestined a people for salvation. And that this brings Him great glory. So, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, we learn that God the Father has chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world. And in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, we're told that God has called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Those two passages, they were divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit for the Apostle Paul to write. So, Paul knew in principle, right, that the Lord Jesus had elected and predestined the people for salvation before the world began. But... He did not know the particulars of that purpose with respect to Corinth. He did not know that many of God's people were right there in that city. This gracious revelation of Jesus was just what Paul needed to persevere in preaching the gospel in Corinth. And he did so for 18 months. This is one of the longest stops for Paul's missionary uh, journey and his travels. Beloved, we, we need to pause here and make just a few more applications from these verses. Like Paul... We can go on proclaiming the good news of Jesus, trusting that the salvation of sinners truly rests in Jesus' capable hands. Though Jesus' vision to Paul is unique, some of the promises, some of the statements that Jesus makes in this vision to Paul really have actually been made to us as well. So Jesus told us in Luke 12 that we should not fear man who can kill the body, but fear God 
who can cast the soul into hell. In Matthew 28, when Jesus was commissioning his disciples to go and make more disciples, he promised them and us that he would be with us always, even to the end of the age. Jesus told us in John 10 that his, his sheep hear his voice and they will respond. So though we don't know who will respond, we can be confident that many will. So we should faithfully offer Jesus to all. Jesus had many people in Corinth. And we should trust that he has many people here in Arlington, in Northern Virginia, that he has for us to minister to. Beloved, let us not stop speaking about Jesus. And if you have, start speaking about him again. From this vision, we see that election is no barrier to evangelism. Rather, it's a boon to it. Election encourages evangelism. So brothers and sisters, let's, let's get on the, with the work of telling others about Jesus Christ. Well, we've seen the Lord Jesus send partners. We've seen him reveal his plan. Let's turn now and consider the third point of our text. The Lord Jesus, he protects his ambassador. The Lord Jesus protects his ambassador. Follow along as I read Acts chapter 18, verses 12 to 17. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it's a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. Well, the, the, the big idea in these verses is that Jesus, he protects Paul. In these verses, Luke captures the fulfillment of the promise that we actually just looked at in the earlier verses, verses uh, 9 to 11. And amazingly, Jesus does it through an unbelieving Roman ruler named Gallio. Gallio's rule it's well documented in ancient literature. This is one of the, the places in, in Acts that gives us a really firm date. So we know that Paul's trial here before the tribunal probably occurs between 51 and 52 AD. That's the time span that Gallio ruled here. And as we can see from verses 12 and 13, the Jews, they come with this united attack and accusation. And, and the accusation is simply this. Paul is preaching contrary to Jewish law, which makes his preaching actually contrary to Roman law. So, so you see, at the time, Judaism was really considered to be a legally protected religion in the Roman Empire. And as long as everyone is following that religion who considered themselves to be Jews, that, that was fine. That was protected. But here is Paul, from the Jewish perspective, preaching and teaching outside of what Judaism taught. And so from their perspective, Christianity was something completely different. And it was something they thought that the Roman ruler should deal with and squash, formally outlaw. But Galileo, he's not buying it, is he? Uh, he quickly dismisses the case on two grounds. First, Paul has done no wrong. He might have some wrong thinking, but he hasn't done any wrongdoing. Right? That's what rulers should punish. Rulers should punish wrongdoing, not wrong thinking. Parallel to this, we see that Gallio dismisses the case because Paul hasn't committed any violent crime. Paul has done no physical violence to anyone. There's no such thing as a thought crime. And even if his thinking and words are wrong-headed, they don't physically do violence to anyone. The, the second reason that Gallio dismisses the case is because he disagrees with the accusation. 
At this point, he doesn't see Christianity different and distinct from Judaism. We see this there in verse 15. Do you see it? But since it's a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And so as a result, Galileo, he takes really no action. He pays no attention, not even to the guy who's being beaten outside of his tribunal. Now, some might pine for a ruler like Gallio, who doesn't step outside the bounds of his authority. But great care should be given here. Gallio does come up short. An unchecked public beating is a failure to administer righteous justice. Being faithful to execute the office of a magistrate, being careful not to go outside your bounds, but to operate within them, and to faithfully carry out justice within them, is a difficult task. The office of a magistrate, a ruler, a judge, is a difficult office. And we ought to pray for those who have such authority in this world. In fact, the scriptures command us to. So make sure that you pray for those who rule over us. Pray for the governor who is just installed. Uh, pray for the representatives here in our local area uh, and who serve us at, at the Capitol in the United States and senators. Pray for those over us. Pray for local judges. They will rule justly and administer. This is a difficult task for them. And we should sincerely pray for them. Pray that they would administer justice and righteousness in accordance with God's principles and mercy as well. But truth be told, Gallio's gavel, it's not the principal point of this section of God's word. It's Paul's protection. Luke gives us these verses to show us how the Lord Jesus protect, uh, kept his promise to protect Paul. And notice that Paul, he doesn't even get a word in. So full and fulsome is Jesus' protection that Paul can't even speak. You see there in verse 14, before Paul can even open his mouth, the protection of the Lord Jesus is on his way through a Roman ruler. Beloved, let us always remember that the Lord Jesus is our faithful protector. We might not be promised protection from God in such a vision and in such a situation, but we can be sure that He has promised to keep our hearts and guard our souls until the consummation of our salvation. We might lose our lives, we might lose our liberties, but the Lord will not lose us and we will not lose our Lord. The Lord Jesus, He protected Paul and He protects us too. There's another reason, though, I think we have these verses from Luke, this account. And that's because of the man who actually receives the beating, Sosthenes. At one level, we can think, you know, we really don't actually need this information, do we? This is just some random guy. But this is probably not just some random guy. Sosthenes probably became a Christian. If you were to flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1, you would find that Paul, when he writes that letter, he writes it from himself and from Sosthenes. Luke likely drops Sosthenes' name here because his first readers would have known who he was and that he was a Christian, that he became a Christian. Uh, just like they would have known who Crispus was and who Titius Justice was. Though Sosthenes was likely the one who actually brought the case against Paul uh, on behalf of the synagogue to Gallio, uh, some point after this, his beating, he was probably saved. Uh, maybe he was accosted by his fellow Jews for his failure with Gallio, but it seems like he was probably accepted by Jesus Christ. And by the Christians. God moves in mysterious ways. He saves former enemies. And he makes them his beloved children. He did it with Paul. Seems like he did it with Sosthenes. Beloved, let us be certain. No one is ever too far from Christ. Even that person standing there and accusing you and accosting you. The Lord Jesus can say. No one is ever out of the reach of Christ. Time and time again, he makes enemies his friends. And we 
We are living proof of that. So we should boldly offer Christ to his enemies. The Lord Jesus, he sends partners, he reveals his plan, he protects his servants, and he propels his mission on. That's our fourth and final point. The Lord Jesus propels his mission. Follow along now as I read verses 18 to 23 of Acts 18. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Shinshrea, he had his hair cut for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now Luke, he doesn't tell us what prompted Paul to leave Corinth and set sail for Syria. But we can reasonably assume that he felt that his mission in Corinth was complete and that he wanted to return back to the church that had sent him out, the church in Antioch. He goes there actually by way of Jerusalem. And that might actually play a factor in the vow that he takes on there and cuts his hair halfway through verse 18 you see there. It's possible that Paul took this vow uh, and cut his hair uh, because he, he decided to take a, what's known as a Nazarite vow upon himself. You can read about that in Numbers chapter 6. Another reason that Paul may have taken a vow and cut his hair is to be sensitive perhaps to the Jewish environment that he was going to enter into. So he was going to go into that synagogue uh, there in Ephesus and then he was going to go to Jerusalem, probably to the temple at some point. Um, so maybe he wanted to be sensitive to those environments that he was going into. It's also possible that Paul took a vow and cut his hair as an expression of thanksgiving to the Lord who had fulfilled his promises and protected him just as he said and brought fruit through his, his preaching ministry. There may be some combination of all of these reasons. But whatever the case may be, Paul is a man of his word. He keeps his vow and he keeps on going as we see. Verses 19 to 21, they communicate to us that Paul, he had success in his ministry at Ephesus. And this is somewhat surprising. All throughout his, um, his missionary journeys in synagogues, Paul has typically faced difficulty. He's typically faced opposition. But, but here we have, um, by grace, uh, by the grace of God, that the Jews in Ephesus, they're receiving Paul's reasoning and they're asking him to stay. Uh, success in ministry will often make men stay, but Paul's a man on a mission, so he's, he's on the move. He does not leave, however, the people in Ephesus without a witness, does he? You see, he, he leaves behind there Priscilla and Aquila. They remain behind as Paul presses on. And perhaps they're left there to help establish a, a fledgling church, as the church in Ephesus will, for a time, meet in their home. We learn about that uh, in actually 1 Corinthians chapter 16, that the church in Ephesus met in their home. And everywhere Paul went, he had companions in ministry. And as I thought about Priscilla and Aquila, they're being hospitable and helpful, remember. Um, and they're, they're parting from Paul, or Paul's parting from them, to minister um, beyond Ephesus. I, I thought of our brother and sister, part of our ch church family, uh, Temba and Unami. Um, while the Lord seems to be moving them on to Thailand for work, uh, he also seems to be moving them to Thailand to engage in mission. Uh, many of you know that through our brother Mark Collins and others, uh, they've made connections with believers there who are trying to plant a church in Thailand so they can participate in that gospel work. Um, like Aquila and Priscilla, our brother and sister, Temba and Unami, they have been helpful and hospitable to us here. 
And we fully expect them, we expect you to go be helpful and hospitable to the gospel there. Uh, Help those brothers and sisters as as best you can. Uh, Like the saints in Ephesus, uh, we might desire for them to stay, but the Lord intends for them to go on. And we might desire for them to return, but that will be up to the Lord's will, right? Paul, he he promised to stay, or promised to come back, insofar as depend upon him. But ultimately, what does he do? He leaves his leading, he leaves his plans in the hands of the Lord. So we we trust their return ultimately into the hands of the Lord. That's what Paul does in in verse 21. Um, Beloved, we we need a a good grasp of God's sovereign providence. That's why Paul utters these words, if God's will. He understands that God's in charge, God's in control. That's what we call his providence. He knows best. And so we too must hold all of our plans lightly. So Proverbs chapter 19, verse 21, teaches us, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Similarly, think about James, what James says in James chapter 4, verses 13 to 15. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. So brothers and sisters, take, take a lesson from James. Take a lesson from Proverbs. Take a lesson from Paul. Use the phrase, if God wills or, or Lord willing. If you've been around here, this church family, for any length of time, you've probably heard that phrase, Lord willing, or at least I hope you have. Um, that's not a, a throwaway phrase that we're tacking on to the end of our sentence or the beginning of our sentences. Uh, that phrase, I, I hope, is, is used to remind ourselves that our lives and that our plans are ultimately in the Lord's hands. And that's right where they should be, right? We live and move and have our being under God's good providence. It shows humility and submission to God to entrust your plans to His care. And that's what we're seeing here in Paul, a humble and submissive servant to the will of God, following the lead of the Lord Jesus. You should make what Paul says here part of your everyday vocabulary. Uh, you know, who knows what the Lord might do through a conversation with a coworker? You say, yeah, Lord willing, I'll be at the meeting at two. Maybe that would open up a conversation about your faith with them. Um, who knows what the Lord would be pleased to do? Um, you, you notice there in verse, uh, Paul presses on from Ephesus, and in verse 22, he lands at Caesarea. He goes up and greets the church in Jerusalem, only then to go down to Antioch. Now, I, I know that the ESV there doesn't actually use the phrase the church in Jerusalem. But the reality is, is that whenever the scriptures speak about someone going to Jerusalem, they describe them as going up. And whenever they're leaving Jerusalem, they're going down. So most scholars are agreed, and some translations go ahead and and give this to you, that Paul has gone up to the church in Jerusalem, and he leaves and goes down and away from it. And he ends up there in Antioch. Um, That's actually the end of Paul's second missionary journey. You see that there in verse 22? So if you wanted to mark in your Bible to some effect that like this is the end of Paul's second missionary journey, it's right there in verse 22 when he returns to the church that sent him out. Now, what is, what is surprising is that we can hardly catch our breath before Paul is setting out again. Do you see that in verse 23? The mission continues. The Lord Jesus, he's, he's propelling Paul on. And notice what he does as he goes. He strengthens the disciples in the churches that he previously planted. Paul's eager to see churches planted, but he also has a deep pastoral concern for the brothers and sisters that he's taught the faith to, for churches that he's already planted. Like Paul, we should have a concern for churches beyond our own. 
And that's why we support men like Mark Collins, who has trained uh, pastors and planted churches in East Asia for the better part of 20 years. It's why we support Charlie Armstrong, who helps to train uh, Arab Christians to establish churches in their home countries. It's why we're now supporting Tiago Oliveira, who is not only pastoring a church in Lisbon, but starting a seminary to train pastors who can serve Portuguese churches in, in Portugal, in Brazil, and beyond. And in the main, this is how we help further the mission of Jesus around the world. These brothers are, are like Paul in that they're seeking to plant churches, but they're also strengthening the disciples under their care. Now, if you were to, to go back and read through the book of Acts and look at those phrases where you see strengthening the disciples, uh, you would find what that entails. Uh, strengthening disciples includes uh, telling them to cling to the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, telling them that through many tribulations we must suffer and then enter the kingdom of God, um, being clear about the challenges ahead and, and then comforting with that truth, right, that, that we will enter Jesus' kingdom. And how do they do that? How, how is this strengthening done? Uh, well, my favorite phrase, or one of my favorite phrases in, in that section of verses, is that they strengthen them with many words or with a long speech, perhaps an argument for lengthy sermons. Anyway, um, this is how Paul would do it. He would go about teaching and preaching the word of God. He, he no doubt followed this pattern. Because strong disciples will make and send out more disciples, or they'll go themselves. And what is striking to me is that the one who was weak in Corinth is now seeking to make other disciples and churches strong. And that's what I want us to think about as we conclude. Brothers and sisters, we began this morning by recognizing that each of us have struggled from time to time with weakness when attempting to evangelize. Like Paul in Corinth, we've been discouraged and lonely and afraid and hesitant. And, and what accounted for that change in Paul? Well, it was the drawing near of the Lord Jesus Christ, wasn't it? Jesus drew near to Paul. He reminded him that ultimately the success of the mission was not dependent upon Paul. Christian, think about how freeing that is. The success of Jesus' mission is not ultimately dependent upon you. It's upon what the Lord Jesus will do in and through you in his great pleasure. It's dependent upon the divine power of the Lord Jesus. He's the one who's leading and guiding his mission in every way. This is freeing and it's also fortifying to us. Brothers and sisters, the Lord Jesus, he is pleased to use our feebleness and our frailty to faithfully proclaim his good news. Is it, is it any wonder that Paul, he wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 3, he, he wrote these words reminding the church in Corinth. He wrote, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. That's who Jesus used in Corinth. A weak, fear, and trembling man. Christian, he can use you. A weak, fear, and trembling soul. That's just who Jesus might use here in Arlington, Northern Virginia. He is in charge of his mission. And beloved, the Lord Jesus can use our weakness to demonstrate his strength and his saving power. And let's ask him to do that now together in prayer. Would you join me in prayer? Let's pray together.